I have just a little article here, and then I'll refer to the scriptures. Sound advice in a difficult age. Now, when we say this to the young people, that they're passing through a period in their life that is difficult, well, we can also apply that to our own selves, because actually, in the uh, mind of God, that's what we still are. We are still children in His sight. The only difference in the teenagers and us is that we have had just a little more experience. That's all. And doesn't mean that we don't need guidance from the Word, same as they do. And when we say to you, do this or do that, doesn't mean that we're the authority on the matter. What knowledge we have and the paths that we should walk has been come from the Word. Without the Word of God, we would be just as lost as anyone. So our remarks to you are not of our own origin. The only difference is that we're just older children than you are. The Lord Jesus indicated that this age would be noted for its problems and troubles, many of which result from the rejection of the Bible in the home. Today's difficulties are increased because teenagers and young people choose to flout both God and family. But the scriptures ask us to manifest a wisdom and a maturity above our years. And therefore I have included the following advice to help you in your stand for the truth. You are greatly blessed because you are acquainted with many of the divine precepts. You know, for example, that your parents are under his command to lead you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Their efforts have been supplemented by the labors of those who worked in the Sunday school. What then has been your attitude during the past year? Have you endeavored to assist the labors of your parents and teachers? Their work will give you eternal life, for no feet but your own can carry you along the straight and narrow pathway of life. They have pointed out the way to go, but it remains for you to seek it. Now when this brother says that a lot of the problems of the society in which we live, especially in the metropolitan areas, thank God you and I live in different parts of the country where that we don't have this serious problem uh, that they have in these metropolitan areas of juvenile delinquency. And what is the reason for it? There is a reason for everything, whether it be a right reason or a wrong reason. There is a reason for everybody's actions. It doesn't mean that that reason is right, but there is a reason for it. And most of it stems from the teenagers, our children, not being taught properly from infancy. Do you remember the, uh, the uh, example of Timothy. The Apostle Paul wrote the two letters to Timothy, first and second Timothy. And what he told this young brother and why this young brother was qualified to help the Apostle Paul in the work, he said that you have known or you have been taught the Holy Scriptures from infancy or from birth. Or from birth have you or from your infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Well for a child to know the Holy Scriptures he has to be taught. So there was a good work of a mother and a grandmother teaching this young man the Holy Scriptures. And really that is the 
really the basic problem of the people in the east and the, and the far west in these places, it is because of lack of home training. Lack of home training. Now when our children, I know that, that all that we say to you, you say, well, it sounds old fashioned. But remember that we have come down that same road step by step that you have. We're just a generation of heads. And we know your problems. We know what you are up against, so to speak. And so what we want to do, we don't want to, we're not saying what we say to you in a spirit of condemnation. We're saying what we're in a spirit of helping. Not to drag you down, but to lift you up. So we pray that what we have to say, that you receive it in that spirit. Also on the activity of a ecclesia. I remember when I was a boy, they were just a few children in the ecclesia, like they are here and like anywhere else. But if you will help, do what you can. It doesn't mean that you have to do big things. Small things matter. Everything in the church is important, although how small it is. But if you will help and assist in the small things, it's just like you can draw an analogy between a natural life and a spiritual life. To do a, a larger job in your lifetime, in, in the material sense, in the way of making a living, you have to learn a small job first, and then you progress to a larger job. Same way it is in the church. Take care of the small things. In that way, that keeps everybody active. What did Jesus mean when he said, if you have given a cup of water in my name, you do so unto me? It means that regardless of how small or how many of the task is, that it is important in his sight. It is important. After all, are the, is there any difference in us, we're flesh and blood, than in the people that he was surrounded with when he was on the earth? There's not one iota of difference in those people. He was instructing those people what he meant and how to do it. And that same applies to us. So we can't shirk the idea and say, oh, well, what I, what I uh, can do is not important. It is important. <clears throat> Some of you, through attending the career, the career you have chosen, are largely cut off from the constant influence of parents and teachers. But if you are wise, you will not forsake their counsel. God says... Keep thy commandments, and forsake not the law of thy mother. Bind them continually upon thy heart, and tie them upon thy neck. Wherever thou goest, it shall lead thee when thou sleepest, it shall keep thee, and when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. Now that is the importance of training a child when he is young and when he is old, he will not depart from it because young minds are very receptive. It's just like Brother Gary gave an illustration. The older we get, the harder are our minds capable of following in that channel. If we would, if we would teach our children these things, regardless if they ever accept it, it is our duty, it is our duty to teach you what the Scriptures say so that you will know you may be among those class, maybe 25 or 30 years old, 
when the Lord appears, yet you're not baptized, you're not a baptized believer, but you will, with your knowledge of the Scriptures, you will be capable of realizing, recognizing that it, that it is the Lord in the earth. <clears throat> the world would ridicule such counsel. Many young people today imagine themselves much wiser than their seniors. But your parents have meditated upon the word much longer than you have, and they know the long and oft times, many times, the bitter experience of trial and test. If you set at naught your God-fearing parents, the Almighty says, the eye that mocketh at his father and despiseth to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out, and the young eagles shall eat it. This is not an idle figure of, of speech. It means that God will not overlook the sin of rebellious children. Now, we had a question here yesterday about does God recognize sin, even those people that are not in covenant relationship with him? Well, I think it would be very erroneous to come to the conclusion that people that do not obey the commandments of God, that they are not sinning against him. All these laws that God has put into the earth, either people obey them or they disobey. It is very erroneous to say that just because you're not a baptized believer that you haven't sinned against God. This tendency to sin is born in every individual is born in every individual. And the only way that we can control it is by reading the scriptures and applying it. I'm afflicted with it. You're afflicted with it. It is very erroneous to say that there is no sin outside the covenant. Therefore, do not be led astray by evil suggestions in this direction. If you are heeding the... Uh, admonitions of God, your attitude to your parents will be that of obedience, respect, and honor. After God, they reoccupy the first place. Let's just read over in Exodus. I'll just read a, two or three verses here in the 20th chapter of Exodus and just give these things are for our example. Show you how that the first law, the first organized set of laws that was given to the human family, how did God want the parents to react, or how did they want to react to their children? Exodus 20th chapter, the 12th verse says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And over in the 21st chapter, 15, 16, and 17, it says, And he that smiteth his father or his mother shall be surely put to death. And he that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. And he that curseth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. See, under the law of Moses, they had laws that were really strict. In other words, a disobedient child, one of these juvenile delinquents, so to speak, that are constantly causing trouble like we see around these gangs in the metropolitan areas. Well, do you know what they would do with those children on the law of Moses? They would talk to them, and if they couldn't straighten up, they'd take them outside the village and stone them to death. So that God says, put the evil away from among you. In the New Testament, we have 
our scripture here confirming confirming what God has meant from the beginning about the training of children. Ephesians six beginning with the first verse says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Now here is something that you say, well, the commandment was given to the Jews. It doesn't apply to us. Well, here is the Apostle Paul writing this letter, letter to the church at Ephesus, saying that, that it may be well with thee, if thou honor thy father and thy mother, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Well, any, all of you are intelligent people. You don't have to... Uh, look very far to see examples of where children have actually been killed. Killed themselves because they didn't follow the advice of their children, of their parents. Even in this life, you see many children that destroy themselves every day through some act of sinning. And the reason they did, they didn't follow the advice of their parents. If they had, they would have been living today. So it is good admonition to us. You may have commenced upon a career, and so it is your duty to reveal diligence in your work. Persevere in this, for fidelity to God demands diligence in daily duties. Set your face against idleness. An idler is a blot upon creation and a harms to God and man. Here again you may have to go contrary to popular opinion. Some people think that idleness is a blessing that allows us to do what we like. But make no mistake, idleness yields neither happiness nor satisfaction. It brings disease to the body and depravity to the mind. Now you know that that's in taking a job, and I'm not saying this just because I'm in business. I remember that when I, I've hired out to other people, and uh, your duty is to do a good job. If you hire out to somebody and you do a good job, the scripture's admonition is, it says, you work not as man-pleasers, but as unto the Lord, as if the Lord was your boss. Now, how would you act if the Lord was your boss and the Lord had an enterprise over here and he hired you? You'd want to do what pleased him, didn't you? wouldn't you? And that's really our admonition. And if you would do that, you will have the respect of your fellow companions, regardless of what they think of your religion. Be diligent in it. In other words, do a good job. Don't be slovenly and think that, well, just because the other fellow does it, does it I, can, I can do it. It is our duty to do a good job. And that doesn't mean to the point of where we make this occupation or a job, our God. We can do a good job without going that far. It is important. It says, do so as unto the Lord, or as if the Lord was there and he was your boss. <clears throat> the importance of wise friends. Now we've discussed this in uh, the Sunday school this morning. You are old enough now to have clearly defined views of what you should look for in a companion and what you should shun. If you have set your mind upon rendering obedience to God, walk with those 
who would lead, walk with those who would help you in your aim. Do not seek the association of those who will lead you away from it. A wise person is one who fears God, but the person who fears him not is a fool. He or she may be nicely dressed, clever, and amusing company, but there must be no mention matters. God, if God is not in all their ways, and consequently if he is not, they stand related to death. Do not have a friend with whom you cannot sit down and read the scriptures. Do not have a friend that will keep you away from the meetings or who will try to avoid God's commandments. The scriptures declare, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, and the companion of fools shall be destroyed. Now that is not only applies to, uh, uh, to the younger children, but to the older children. We have to be uh, selective in our friends, and, and I don't mean that in a self-righteous attitude, and I'm certainly not in an attitude of uh, holier than thou that we are better because we're the same flesh and blood that they are. We have the same tendency to sin that they do. But it is our obligation to, if we not, do not have the company of the brethren, is have company with somebody that, you can, that has spiritual thoughts. There's other people that, there are still people left in the world that enjoy a Bible discussion. If we can, let's seek those out. Not only for the little children, but the older children, such as myself. And we don't, we don't have to have a self-righteous attitude to play this part. That's not the point. If we have a self-righteous attitude, while well, we'll destroy any influence besides self-righteousness in the sight of God is a sin within itself. So we'll be sinning before we even start. Self-righteousness is something that God does not want because he said that no flesh can glory in my presence. And that's what self-righteousness is. As you grow older, you will come more in contact with the world. Do not deceive yourselves with mistaken notions about it. God says that the friendship with the world is an enmity to him. Therefore, be on your guard and beware of letting your affections go out to those in whose company you are ashamed to own God and are ashamed of God's friends. Remember, there is a class of people of whom God will be ashamed of when his day for recognition comes. And it will be largely made up of those who have been ashamed to make a stand for him in the midst of an evil world. We'll read there in Mark. Mark 8.38 says, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him shall also the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So it just boils down to this. And the scriptures, I believe, bear it out. If you stand up for God, he will stand up for you. Now, which is more important? Don't you want to be on his side? Well, certainly you do. If you will stand up for God, he will stand up for you.
To be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord does not simply mean that you are able to find a passage to prove that man is mortal or that Christ is coming to the earth again. It carries with it much more than this. It brings in not only duty, it, it brings in not only duty to God, but also duty to man also. And this necessitates that you should be truthful and upright in your dealings, whether at home, in school, or at business. It demands an all-around courtesy and consideration for your neighbors. Now, you know, the, uh, there's two commandments that Jesus said that all the law hung on. What was the first one? It says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, or all thy life should be. Then love thy neighbor as thyself. In other words, you wouldn't want to do your neighbor any harm. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Where this behavior exhibits an absence of respect and deference toward seniors, an important element in the ways of God has been overlooked. If you are intent upon obeying God, you will be sure to encounter difficulties and trials. But if you are able to say, the Lord is on my side, you will also be able to say, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Christ's advice is to first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and every good thing shall be added to you. 20 minutes to 12, I have a whole book here of scriptures, but uh, I'll just hurry because we still have memorial service. We have covered almost every detail of this, but I want to read what another thought on education, which we discussed in, in uh, the class this morning. In Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Now we, as believers, we know and we should realize that God's wisdom should supersede any wisdom of the world. It has been said by many Bible critics, and the Bible has many critics, men of learned intelligence for the wisdom of the world. It has been said, I read one time, that Jesus would have found much better material to be apostles if he had gone to Athens, which was the ancient capital of the Grecian Empire, but was still, even after the Roman Empire, overthrew it, still Greece, Athens, Greece, was a great cultural center. In other words, this Bible critic said that Jesus would have found much better material if he had gone to Athens and picked someone to be apostles that were very intelligent. And really, the only apostle that I can think of that was really had, was well educated was the apostle Paul. The others, the scriptures speak of them as being unlearned men that is unlearned in the ways of the world. So which is better? Education is fine if we don't put too much emphasis on it.
I want to read from Proverbs a few verses here in Proverbs 13, speaking of our attitude toward our children. Proverbs 13, 24. Say that he that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Another admonition that as children there's times that we have to use the rod. Just the same example that it says in the New Testament that whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth. In other words, we have to be chastened by God. We have to be chastened by God. That's what our trials and tribulations are for, are for chastening. They're for our learning, that if we are rightly exercised thereby. And the same way with chastening a child, it's not the idea that you are in anger. It's that you want to train this child in the way that he should go. I want to read from Proverbs, the third chapter, which is 1 through 7. Do we realize that we don't have all the answers? This is what applies to us. It says, My son, forget not my law, but let thy heart keep my commandments. For a length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. And so you see, if we have a, a problem with our children, or we have a problem that's bothering us, the only way that we can have any help is realize that of our own self, we may not be capable of correcting it. In other words, pray about it. Ask God's counsel in dealing with the problem. <clears throat> I want to read some in John. It, John gives us a good picture of what the position that we're in and what we can do about it or what help it is available to us. Now here's a setting that Jesus, it's right before the Garden of Gethsemane and beginning with the ninth verse there, he's, he's praying to God. He says, and I pray for them, that is the apostles I pray not for the world but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine and all mine are thine. In other words, he's saying all that the apostles that are belong to me are thine. And thine are mine, and I am glorified in, in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep them through thine own name, whose, keep them through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. Well, how could they be one? The only way they could be one is he is one in purpose. 
While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that is, Judas is carried, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Over there in the last verse of the previous chapter, he says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So that is a promise to us. He says that we are in the world, but not of the world. But he also gave the promises, I have overcome the world, and take up your cross and follow me. He, doesn't, he hasn't left us here without help. He says, I have overcome the world. And he says, you can too, you follow me. We'll never overcome the world to the extent of Jesus will. But he, what it means is that we must make the effort. And he's promised us that we're not left to ourselves. If we felt like that we could uh, solve every problem that we have ourselves, what does he mean by says, but my burden, let's see, let me get it straight now. He says, it's in Matthew the 11th chapter. Eleventh and verse 28 through 30. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He says, in other words, he has an invitation for us to come unto, come unto him when our problems are heavy. He says, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Now that's, that's the condition that we have to come to him in. Not with the idea that we are self-supporting and that we can solve it ourselves. He says, come unto me, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest unto your souls. That is, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's the only way that we can lighten this burden is that we come to him in a low and mealy, low and meekly heart. We can't come any other way. We can't come with the idea that we are self-sufficing, that we know it all. His burden, he won't take care of those burdens for us. I think it would be wrong if we didn't, I'm not necessarily wrong, but I think in the 24th chapter of Matthew, let's read a few verses there. I'm, I'm sorry, Luke, Luke 21. Now this is a prophecy of that Jesus had there when he was speaking of the latter days. Of course, I know that this is old stuff to Christadelphians because they've taught it for over a hundred years. And possibly some of you children get tired of hearing it. But as events take place in the world, I can remember when I was a boy that they spoke of Russia 
as being wanted these days, being the most powerful nation or, or one of the most powerful nations on the international scene. But it couldn't, I was only 12 or 13 years old, but I couldn't see the impact of that because then Russia was a backward country, very backward country. And as these events take place, they become, we become normal, or they are normal. We, they lose their emphasis. It says in the 24th verse, says, They shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. And upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when they, these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And he spake to them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the fig trees. Now all biblical scholars, you don't have to take our word for it, all biblical scholars that have studied the Bible, they all say that the fig tree is a representative of the Jewish nation. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is nigh at hand. So likewise, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness, and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come upon all them that dwell on the face of the earth. I hear Jesus speaking of this condition, says, For as a snare shall it come upon all them that dwell on the face of the earth. Do you really believe that? Now he spoke this about, let's see, this was about A.D. 32 or 33. Do you really believe that? Is he authority on the matter or not? He says that in his coming, it's going to come as a snare upon the world. Some people quote the verse in the first chapter of Revelation and say, whenever the Son of Man comes in his glory, whenever I shall see him. Well, that's what the King James Version says. But the original Greek don't say it that way. What does it say? The original Greek says, Every eye of faith shall see him. That's what the original Greek says. There is a difference when every eye shall see the Lord coming in glory and every eye of faith. What does it mean, every eye of faith? Those that are watching and looking for his appearance. That's those that have every, those with an eye of faith. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the earth. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all those things that shall come to pass and stand and to stand before the Son of Man. So it behooves us, and it's not old stuff. I've heard this all my life, that let's be waiting for the time of the Lord. And that's what the apostles did. They just didn't understand. He couldn't tell them that it would be 
several thousand years or 500 years later, they'd lose faith. They'd lose faith. Let's turn over to Second uh, Thessalonians, I believe, or Second Timothy. This is not on the subject, but it just gave a a better thought. Now, where is it that says, I have fought a good fight? Is that in Timothy? Timothy the third. All right, in the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy. Now, I, I didn't have this in my talk, but I just wanted to show you how the Apostle Paul says, I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. In other words, here he's saying, I tell thee, or I charge thee, that the Lord Jesus Christ, he will judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. He knew that his probation was practically over, and he was about to die. He says, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me when? At that day. Read your reference out here. It refers you back to the first, to the first verse. Is, I charge thee at his appearing and his kingdom. At that day, and what? And not to me only, but to all them also that love his appearing. So you see the judgment and the Immortality is a collective thing. When the Apostle Paul died, he didn't go, uh, wasn't granted immortality at that time. Here he tells you. In other words, he gives you a short resume of his life, and he's ready to be offered. But he says, I charge thee at his appearing and at his kingdom, and not to me only, but to all those that love his appearing. 